back to this second podcast of the John Deeble Lecture and Panel Discussion with special guest speakers Professor Ian Fraser, the Honourable Nicola Roxon, Mr Romley Mokak and Professor Nigel Edwards. My name is Rebecca Haddock and I'm the Director of the Deagle Institute for Health Policy Research. This discussion was recorded live during the inaugural event on the 18th of October 2019 at Parliament House in Canberra. So we're now going to have our panel. So we have three very eminent Australians who have all been involved in really highly successful health policy initiatives. And somehow they have managed to navigate their way through this quagmire that Nigel has outlined for us. So I would like to introduce our panel and ask them to come to the stage. So first of all, Ian Fraser. Professor Ian Fraser is clinical scientist. He was Australian of the Year in 2006 and has also been appointed as Companion of the Order of Australia in 2013. And he is currently head of the Federal Government's Medical Research Future Fund, which makes him very popular with other researchers. And I think it's fantastic having him in that role because not only is he a clinician, research lab-based scientist, but he also has been involved in the health policy area. And so he understands the importance of funding the whole broad range of health research. Secondly, I'd like to introduce the Honourable Nicola Roxon. Nicola obviously is well known to many of us. She's been a Member of Parliament for 15 years, including as Health Minister for four years from 2007. And in 2011, she became Australia's first female Attorney General. She has won numerous awards for her work in tobacco control, including the WHO Director General Special Recognition Award in 2011. And finally, our third panellist, Mr Romley Mokak and he's another Australian trailblazer who has recently been appointed as the Productivity Commission's first full-time Indigenous Policy Evaluation Commissioner. He was previously the CEO of the Lewitcha Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Research and he served as the CEO of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association for almost a decade, which I think probably deserves an award as well, maybe. So what we did is we chose our panel, we've chosen three health policy areas to really try to untangle how they managed to navigate their way through the political and other processes. So I'm going to start with Ian. Let me start with giving a little bit of background about HPV vaccination. So Ian Fraser and his colleagues, as many of you will know, co-developed the HPV vaccination. In 2006, Gardasil was approved by the FDA and in 2007, Australia became the second country to introduce government-funded HPV vaccination for girls, and that was extended to young males. There are very few researchers who ever get a headline like this, God's gift to women. (laughs) And I think the slightly doctored headline on the right may have been from Ian's colleagues who wanted to bring him down to earth. It was in Cosmopolitan magazine. (laughs) So here, HPV is just some data to put it in contrast to polio, which many of us probably don't think about very much. Australia had epidemics in the late 1940s and 50s. We closed our borders to try and stop the transmission. It resulted in deaths and lots of paralysis. And so here you can see that HPV really stacks up against polio in terms of the risks that it presents. Internationally, the vaccination is having enormous impact, and I know Ian will probably touch on some of the other areas where it's really started to be taken up internationally. However, these things are never without their controversy, 
And even though it might seem quite straightforward to many of us here, there was a lot of debate about conservative groups suggesting there may be negative clinical effects. And also, we can always rely on Barnaby Joyce for a choice quote. Here he says, there might be an overwhelming backlash from people saying, don't you dare put something out there that gives my 12-year-old daughter a license to be promiscuous. Interestingly, what has then followed from that, probably less than half of the US states have implemented HPV vaccination. And so other health researchers have really felt the need to try to present evidence that this actually is not the case. And here you can see a very recent report which shows that perhaps not surprising to many of us, we didn't see an uptake in promiscuous activity of adolescents following the introduction of the vaccination. So Ian, the media and being in the limelight is not the natural habitat of a lab-based scientist. So can you tell us a little bit maybe about your role and how it changed from when you sort of started those scientific discoveries to actually trying to realise that you had to, you know, support the process of health policy reform. Yes, look, the vaccine was, of course, the result of research that was done some 15 years before the vaccine became available publicly. And during that time, I think that what happened was that we learned a great deal more about how papillomavirus infection was associated with cervical cancer. When we came up with the technology for the vaccine, there was very little data about that. There was a common perception that this was a very rare infection which quite commonly caused cancer, rather than as we now know, a very common infection which rarely causes cancer. So those evidence uh, became available during that 15 years. So by the time the vaccine became available, and I also then by that time had a sort of public profile because that was the year I was Australian of the Year, which I suspect was in some measure a reflection of the fact that we'd come up with the vaccine technology. At least in Australia, there was a readiness to perhaps accept a vaccine. And although uh, the first round of getting it through the government system, getting approval for its use actually failed, there was somewhat of an outcry about that at the time publicly, got into the media quite extensively. And the Prime Minister, John Howard, then intervened and said that there would be delivery of the vaccine within Australia within the next year. Uh, this was a policy that was, was out the means to deliver it at that time. I mean, the fact that policy was going to mean vaccine programmes to 12-year-old girls hadn't really been taken into consideration. We did not give routine care to 12-year-old girls for any particular public health issue. Vaccines were going to be given through state governments, and it was the federal government that decided the policy should take place. A whole set of new policies had to be put in place to enable that to happen. But nevertheless, it was delivered within a year across the country routinely to 12 to 25-year-olds, and particularly to 12 to 15-year-old girls in schools. Did I have a part in that? Well, yes, I did speak out and say I think this was something that needed to be done. But in retrospect, Australia did not have a huge problem with cervical cancer. I mean, it is a problem in this country, let's face it, mm. but we had a really good screening program, which was the public health policy, which is mm. by far the most effective in this country for preventing cervical cancer right now. And uh, participation in the screening program is, in fact, globally probably more important right now than getting the vaccine out there because it's immediate and protects you right now, whereas a vaccine policy has a 20-year lag before you start to see the real benefits of it. So I still go out there and advocate quite extensively have given advice to WHO and they have adopted a policy this year and Tedros as Director General of Health has declared that during his tenure as Director General of Health at WHO he will roll out a global policy for immunisation and screening for cervical cancer and I think that's the important point. Somebody has actually done the homework and worked out what really will be the effective means of preventing cervical cancer globally. 
So, I mean, one of the issues that's come up is the need for more evidence to inform policy and the intersection between researchers and policymakers. I was wondering what your thoughts are about how well prepared we researchers are for, you know, interfacing with policymakers, for trying to get... I mean, Nigel talked about being able to do a nice two-page summary, but do our researchers really have the skills or are we actually asking too much of them? So we talk about, you know, taking from the bench to the bedside. Well, fortunately, researchers come in many different flavours <laughs> and there are the people who, like myself, were really lab-based, but at least I was a clinician and lab-based, so I had some understanding of what we were trying to deal with. Thinking about policy and health, policy and research is a bit the same. There are many people out there trying to answer. They've answered a problem that we didn't actually have. It's uh, quite easy to come up with test tube cures for cancer. Hydrochloric acid is very good at killing cancer cells, uh, but that really doesn't make it publicly useful. So one of the challenges, I think, for the health research industry is to ensure that as many as possible of the people who are doing the basic science are also well educated as to where the health problems that we're trying to solve actually lie and fortunately now we're beginning to realise the importance of that and ensure that the concept of translation of the knowledge that we generate is as important as the generating the basic knowledge itself. Both are critically important. You can't get translation of something you don't have but if you have a lot of people working on areas where there is no immediate prospect of useful translation then you're probably not getting the best bang for a buck and so that we just have to spread the word about that. Thank you. All right, so we might change now to a different topic area, and this is tobacco plain packaging. So a number of countries toyed with the idea of this, but in 2008, the Australian government set up a national preventative health task force, really making tobacco a priority area, looking at the evidence that packaging was influencing the uptake of tobacco by young children. And in 2011, Australia was the first country in the world to legislate tobacco plain packaging. Today, 17 countries in the world are either in the process or have done this. But as probably many of us here remember, this was not an easy thing to get through. And the tobacco companies really did fight back quite extensively. And particularly, there was lots of threats and actual legal actions as a consequence. And I think what was also very interesting was they started a public campaign to basically you know, warn us all the how dangerous this would be to our economy and that it wouldn't actually work. And there was one archive that we came across. So Nicola, this is probably taking you back to a fairly traumatic time in your past. This was an incredibly bold and politically difficult and dangerous thing to do. How on earth did you manage to navigate this process? Well, I feel like it's good that we have this example because I must say your presentation made me so depressed about the assessment of governments (laughs) and politics that I almost feel like I have to defend my own (laughs) grip. But we might come back to that later. Look, it was a difficult thing to do in some ways, but actually compared to a lot of health reforms, it was an easy thing to do. So, I think some of the issues that were picked up in the keynote were really important to us being able to do this. There was good research. We actually set up a system where the researchers were going to give us advice about what we could do. We then took that advice, which I accept is not always common. And unlike a lot of other health reforms, we actually didn't have to have, in our complex federation, the states didn't have to agree, the doctors didn't have to agree. Actually, researchers didn't have to agree, but did happen to. And there was an opponent, unusual in health policy, that people trusted even less than politicians. Um, So our fight, which was difficult and there was a lot of conflict, had this 
perverse impact of giving me and the government a platform to talk about the dangers of smoking. I think we had more free media on a public health message than we could ever have dreamed of over two or three years of it being contested. And we had big tobacco that actually everybody knew had been lying to them forever. So yes, it took a lot of coordination across government. It took a lot of us holding very firm, but we had an enormous amount of support. And I guess the one maybe controversial thing I'm going to emphasise for today is I think it's fair to expect governments and politicians to act on evidence. But I actually also think you need to expect influential stakeholders to do the same. And in this instance, we had that. We had the Cancer Council absolutely on the phone when there was the first attack about everything. They were in the media. You know, we weren't ever on our own in defending something that we thought was important. Whereas for so many other things in health, actually self-interest of particular professional mm. groups, parochialism for different, you know, states, can't ever change something. You know, very rarely do you as a health minister have people agree with you on important reforms. And so the challenge is also enable that good decision making by getting some agreement. And I, so I couldn't agree more on the importance of intermediaries who can simplify things. I'm absolutely in the get it on one page. You know, politician only gets not even 30 seconds in the media. So if you can't put your thesis on one page of why you should do something, forget it. Not that someone won't read that extra detail, but you have to get them interested. And then they might actually ask the public servants to go and read that detail, or maybe read it on a flight to Perth if you've got nothing else to do. But you really have to think about the expectations you have of government, you also have to put on yourselves mm. to help government be able to choose those good options. And we really felt enabled that this was, you know, put to us as an idea once we saw it. I knew nothing about plain packaging before I was elected. It wasn't something I had in my kit bag ready to go. As soon as I understood the proposal, it was a no-brainer. And then they really helped us implement. And that was important. So, it's so you've got power. Yeah. Not, it's not just governments that yeah. have power. So it's sort of interesting because you're presenting it as one of those few times that perhaps the rational argument sort of followed all the way through. But clearly other countries, you know, had shied away from it. And I imagine behind closed doors among your political colleagues that there may have been a little bit of nervousness. Oh, there was definitely nervousness. And that was the most key argument. It wasn't difficult to get health support. It wasn't yeah, yeah. difficult in a way once we'd decided to do it to then just stick with it. But I think it's a tribute to the other colleagues in a time in government that people think was pretty chaotic, actually when decisions were made, they were stuck with. And, you know, we had our trade minister and our treasurer and our prime ministers actually saying, look, this isn't about anti-trade or this isn't about intellectual property. This is about being anti-cancer. Who is an anti-cancer? And I mean, you can't guarantee that sort of support as a health minister very often. So I think it was easy to understand once we'd made a decision to do it. It was in a bit of a political sweet spot because we also increased taxes for tobacco at the same time, amongst other things. And, you know, the Treasurer never gets to announce an increase in tax policy that anybody likes, except in an instance like this. Mm. And so you just had a coming together of a range of things that I think made it much easier to defend. And I think I must have said, I'm sure Ian has done this a million times on Gardasil as well, it's not that hard to hold firm on a policy that you think will save children's mm. lives. Mm. You know, even Alan Jones doesn't argue with that. So, you know... You do have to think differently, and this is why multidisciplinary messaging as well is so important. You don't always know how to best sell your policy. There may be a reason that governments haven't heard
heard your fantastic proposal and you may need to tip it upside down and look at a different way of presenting it and that might need behavioural economists, it might need communications people, it might need a whole range of different people that often we don't talk to and, and AAHHA and others are really well placed to be able to unleash that sort of influence. Do you think it'd be possible today? Well, I've been very disciplined in my six years out of politics not to comment <laughs> on <laughs> contemporary <laughs> politics, and I think I, I should stick to that. that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. So let's turn now to our third case study. So this is about low aromatic fuel to reduce petrol sniffing. And this was first introduced into Indigenous communities 2005 as part of a range of strategies which were really designed to reduce harm and supply. Crucial was community support and the engagement in the process. BP Australia was the first company to develop this type of fuel and it's called Opal Fuel and they worked very collaboratively with the Commonwealth Government in order to ensure that this fuel could be subsidised and provided to communities at the same cost as unleaded petrol. But it very much required upon the community seeking out to be involved in this intervention. It's been incredibly successful and a very recent report from the University of Queensland which estimates that there's been a 95% reduction between 2006 and 2018. So this really, Ron, this is an example of a really successful policy focused on Indigenous health where perhaps there are not as many examples in that area. Why do you think it was able to work in this instance? I mean, I think similarly to Ian and Nicola's examples, you know, people are invested in children. So if you observe the horrors of petrol sniffing with an Aboriginal kid, largely in remote communities, you know, with a Coke bottle cut off, you know, at the neck, actually with a kind of haze look on their face, completely disconnected from the community and, and themselves in many ways. That's a pretty horrific image. So that's one thing, you know, how do we, even though the numbers of sniffers were not vast, mm. the impacts were, were huge. And the nature of sniffing is such that if, if there's access to supply, you literally have these outbreaks like wildfire and an active recruiting process with the sniffing group leaders. And this can wreak havoc on communities. So that's one very compelling aspect of it. But I think more than anything, you know, to see the work through, there was intersectoral, intergovernmental commitment. The Commonwealth led it but it couldn't have been done without a whole lot of relationships to deliver on that commitment being built at the jurisdictional level. So South Australia, WANT. We chaired a, a reference group in Alice Springs frequently. This was in the, the kind of dying days of ATSIC, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission. So we had the, the community leadership at the table. We had service providers. We had some of the most extraordinary people that I've ever had the, the good fortune to meet in a policy context being police officers at the local level. These are people who'd worked in Aboriginal affairs for 20, 30 years and still doing the hard yards. We had health and a whole range of other interested parties. So there was the convergence of government industry, and I can maybe speak a bit later to where industry came in, in a context where competition was so important in industry. At the time, the Australian Fuel Institute essentially put that aside to allow for BP to take the lead. This is extraordinary. Mm. We had emissions legislation 
legislation about to be passed and enacted, so there was a need to look for a, a low emissions unleaded alternative, as distinct from a, a leaded fuel, Avgas at the time. We grew the evidence base. One of the things that I'm really proud of, and it relates directly to the position that I'm in now around policy and program evaluation, was the fact that in that 2005 budget, where we got about another 10 million into the system, I made sure that there was about a million of that dedicated quarantine for evaluation. So we've seen this evaluation and evidence base grow through evaluation over the, the last 15 years. And that is really um, extraordinary in the sense of bringing all those different players together. And in a sense, many of the health, you know, often we're trying to make health policy and it's not often just about health, it's often about related to social policy and trying to bring the whole picture together. So what do you think we can learn more generally from that model and why that was successful to, you know, translate it to other types of, you know, initiatives in other communities? I think it's really difficult. We know about the fiefdoms that are portfolios and then even further down the programs being kind of protected and and any number of mechanisms that disallow flexibility. If we think about just quite simply at the service level, the overburden on not only Indigenous organisations but many service providers with multiple streams. So not easy. I think for me, it was really about keeping the kids at the centre. Mm. So if you, if you accept that proposition, you know, we had media, and this is an aspect where media really did push politicians to think about what the response would be. So we had widespread support and driven by the community. The community have got to be seen as the, the main actors in all of this, if you like. But having it on the front page regularly, a number of coronial inquests, mm. uh, you'd never want to go through one coronial inquest, let alone three that we went through in the three and a half years that I was you know, in the job. So I think keeping kids at the centre, having a lot of angles to the, the particular issue, a lot of support makes a big difference. We now have an opportunity to ask panel questions from the audience. So if you have a question, once again, we'll have a roving mic. So if you just introduce yourself. Uh, Anna Peters from Deakin University. I just want to say thank you very much. It's great to hear all these positive examples. But I'd like the panel to reflect on the fact that sort of the three examples we've heard for really, you know, significant issues, the solutions were products in a way. So a vaccine, tobacco, plain packaging and a new fuel A lot of the issues that we know we have to face, such as the ones you put up, complex chronic conditions, aged care, Mm. mental health, probably will require a degree of system reform. And I just wondered if the panel could comment a little bit on how we might think about trying to get successful system reform. Yeah, and I think that's why we... It's a perfect call-out because they are different examples and particularly in our federated system... For example, I think in our current system, it's quite rational for states to not want to do more things outside hospitals in some ways, but it's actually not rational for the community and it's not rational when you look at the whole bucket of health spending, but, you know, it might be rational for your own budget. So the sort of rational and evidence base doesn't quite help unless you put it back through the patient's perspective. So I do think we have to think about this differently, but I was gobsmacked. Some of you probably have heard me say this before, that in all the briefings that you get when you're a new minister, it took, I can't remember how many, but easily 30 or 40 of the first briefings and meetings, so not just public service, but 
also key sector players, for anyone to say the word patient. And it wasn't because they were saying customer, you know, or, or some <laughs> other kind of, you know, name, depending on the trend of the day. It was actually that they really did want to talk about system. Mm. And the problem, I agree, our system has a lot of difficulties, but no one ever wants to fix the system. And it falls into, I think, the examples that were given in the keynote very dramatically. You know, we did try that. We had a very kind of complex health reform proposal. Some of them worked and are still alive. Some of them are not. Some of them will get implemented in 20 years' time. Others won't. I just think we haven't nailed the way in Australia you can actually simplify what you're trying to deliver and then work back about what each player needs to do. We've got public-private mix, we've got state-federal mix, we've got, I still think, a lack of leadership amongst a lot of the health professionals that could actually totally change the debate. And I mean, I've said this often enough that I'm not being too controversial, well, I might still be controversial, <laughs> but I mean, the AMA is still an organisation that has a sufficient voice and enough power that if they put their brains to a significant change in the system, politicians would be able to deliver it. But instead, it always gets picked off. So I think we haven't got the magic answer right about how we make fixing the system and those complex things into a simple enough purpose, get your clarity and purpose right, and then somehow or other expect the miracle of so many different players all then doing their bit in a system that when you change one bit has to move the other. I mean, I guess that's what John Deeble was really good at. He crossed those paths and I think NDIS is doing part of that and it's having the rocky road that you would expect it to with a big new reform. How are we going to find the next motivated to do that within the health system? I think is much more likely to be solved by this group than it is within government, but then we actually have to get the motivation and, and mechanism to do it. Joel, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I was very struck. All three examples were about something where there was a very strong sense of moral purpose mm. about mm. why this is important. And I think about other policy successes, and there are quite a lot of policy successes, but they're much less interesting than, uh, than the ones <laughs> that go wrong. The deinstitutionalisation movement in mental health is another very good example where this was framed as something that was the right thing to do rather than what we tend to do when we talk about system change is frame it in very technocratic terms which doesn't connect to anybody. So you don't get the sort of coalition that we heard being built in all three examples of people who thought this is important and we really care about it because mm. you know the technocratic stuff that we tend to do when we talk about like, creating integrated care or uh, activity-based funding or whatever it is isn't framed in ways that talk about how real people are affected. It's interesting that the triple aim just recently had this sort of quadruple aim, people familiar with this, so uh, efficiency, population, health, etc. Someone suddenly worked out that staff might be quite important too, and it's, it's interestingly framed as restoring joy in practice, which we tried to get the Welsh government to adopt, but they didn't like the word joy, didn't really correspond with the Welsh view of the world. So, but I do think framing something that actually speaks to how people feel about things, as well as the kind of, and we tend to be very rapid rational and technocratic and I think therefore we miss a significant trick. In a sense the, the focus here today has been on the fuel as a product but the strategy that we developed, I think they called, we called it an eight, eight point strategy, there was a whole lot of other stuff in there much more important in a sense which was about autonomy and control and decision making and prevention and a youth focus intergenerational in its scope so I don't want people to think that that was the silver bullet. Yeah. The other thing is that 
when we think about the system, we know how the system, if there is such a thing, has failed Indigenous people for 230 years. So the, the frame through which we look at the business is quite different. And a lot of that ends up being you know, us having to work at the national level, the state level, at every level really, in a non-partisan way. Um, you know, Tony Abbott was the health minister during the time of the petrol sniffing strategy development. Nicola was a health minister when we looked at this sort of uh, proliferation of Aboriginal health institutions, many of them now celebrating their 10th year, the Healing Foundation, the, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Workers Associations. So it's professional bodies really being able to then, you know, take their representative bodies, whether the AMA or in, in medicine, medical deans or presidents of medical colleges into a discussion that demands a lot more. So I think we're operating on multiple levels. Our world is, is not temporal. It, you know, it's ancestral as well as future looking. So we've, we've got to work within that frame as Indigenous people. Thank you. Um, I've got Indigenous family members, including a little 11-year-old boy who goes to the Cape. It's interesting that you defined Cape and Gulf separate. So he's somewhere in between there. And on the community, when he's there, like, it's just riotous, you know, like there doesn't seem to be... I mean, they have things, they run around and do things, but he comes back fairly wild, you know, when he comes back to town. So, I mean, it's really important about petrol change, but, you know, there needs to be some more um, things to do intervention or something I, I don't know what it is but you know when you're living with it it's a very hard thing to live with yeah I mean I know that you know there are lots of challenges in many communities including indigenous communities but the solutions sit within communities we do have evidence international evidence of that where communities have greater control and decision making about how the resources are used they deliver better outcomes so I mean working in my job in the Commonwealth before I left to work in indigenous health sector over the last 15 years was in the, in the area of substance use. So I was a, left as a director of substance use for the Commonwealth. My brief was to look at custodial health, male health and substance use. So that convergence of all of those things was a very difficult area. But often the policy responses are, from, are externally concocted and delivered, which is exactly the opposite of what needs to happen. I can't comment on any particular instance or community. But, you know, part of this important story is, and I think, Nigel, you spoke about the frame and the narrative, us getting the narrative right. You know, there's, there's a narrative around deficit, deficit discourse in Indigenous for you know, applying a deficit discourse to Indigenous people. So talking about Indigenous people in a deficit sense, that that becomes normalised. Now the problem with that then is that, that that is almost an equation that says Indigenous people are problematic people. They're proprietors of the problem. They own the problem. And that, you know, that, that has to be challenged. We all have to challenge that. And I'd put the challenge out to all of you in the room, really, as health advocates, around how you think about that and then act on what your, your beliefs are around that, whether it's about learning about Indigenous people or the truth-telling that needs to happen in this country or, indeed, whether it's about policy reform within your organisations. I wonder whether there's a, a, a general tendency in many countries for governments to feel more that they have to tell people the answer rather than relying on sort of asset-based type community development models to help people find answers that work for them locally. And there's around the world some really nice examples where that seems to work. It takes time, but there's a sort, there is a sort of help, you know, well-intentioned paternalism in trying to give people the answer that you think will be helpful. Mm -hmm. but, uh, One quick last question here. 
David Perkins from the Centre for Rural and Remote Mental Health, dealing with drought, well-being, services and rural suicide, amongst other issues. We hear a lot of two things. One is that we have the best health system in the world, and secondly, that we're spending lots and lots of money on different things, and we get great lists of them. And I guess um, linking this into the Productivity Commission review on mental health, I'm wondering whether good and straight data, perhaps in the way that the Audit Commission pretended to do or did do in the past, might enable us to have a slightly more grown-up conversation and to look at strengths-based approaches to dealing with these problems in rural areas, which clearly are vastly different and which have, in some cases, remarkable resources and some cases are in a fairly sad just on the, the work that the Commission's undertaking at the minute, the mental health inquiry has been the, the biggest, most engaged, if, if you're looking at submissions in inquiry, as I understand it, that the Commission has, has had in its existence. So there's certainly a lot of interest in where the Commission's work might land. I mean, obviously there's a, a draft report that will be due out soon and you know, that's there for, for further commentary. So I can't go into the specifics, but you know, mental health is absolutely a big issue in this country, including in regional and remote areas. So I guess that's as much as I can say. I mean, maybe I might just make a quick comment about commissions generally and the, the challenge that you know, if it's a process that you as a minister establish and you as a minister get to respond and you as a minister get to implement, you've got more sense of the trajectory. Unfortunately, I do think we've seen commissions set up where really it's kicking something, you know, the can down the road and sometimes with the hope that somebody else will have a really difficult problem to deal with rather than themselves. And so I think it's another reminder of what the community does with it because, you know, governments don't have to act on recommendations from royal commissions and from productivity commissions. And there's a reason of that separation, and sometimes it's actually uh, the community is very happy they don't act on some of those things. But other times, I think there is that responsibility then for some of the campaigning around why recommendations then need to be acted upon mm -hmm. is really important. And people, I think, often say, oh, we've got the inquiry, now we don't have to keep that pressure on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's very hard in a community, particularly hard with mental health, but I think that, you know, the awareness and the timing and the groundswell of support is amazing, but that momentum will still have to continue once recommendations come out. Otherwise, you know, they can be put on a shelf somewhere and that isn't always desirable. Sometimes I admit it is desirable, but it's not always desirable. <laughs> I think, I think there's a so, data on its own. I was at ANU uh, a, few, a few days ago, and it was a fantastic case study showing the beautiful plotting of a patient's observations as they died, and no one had done anything. And there's a lot of examples of publication of data. It took it's eight or nine years of publishing data on poor stroke outcomes in the UK for anyone to actually spot the data. So data without interpretation is an advocacy to go with it is of limited help, I think. So I want to take us back now to 1975, for those of us here who can remember. And Medicare, or Medibank as a precursor to Medicare, was really about um, equity and access of healthcare services. This is the line that Bill Hayden used when he was introducing the bill in 1975. The purpose is to provide the most equitable and efficient means of providing health insurance coverage for all Australians. And so this was really at the heart of what Dick Scotton and John Deeble were trying to achieve for Australia. So 
in thinking back, I'm going to ask our panel a few questions about their thoughts about Medicare and universal health insurance. And maybe I should um, explain the, the picture on the end. This is not to suggest that Rom had a chaotic childhood, but this was because in 1975, he'd just experienced Cyclone Tracy. Many of us will remember he was about to start high school at Darwin High, which started its school term two days late as a response. So Rom, thinking back then and your experience, what impact do you think Medicare has had for Australians and on the Australian healthcare system? It's a big question. Yeah, huge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wasn't lazy about that. It's just that I, I couldn't find a photo. And I've been overseas <laughs> for a bit. In fact, I, I got back from New Zealand or back into Canberra this morning. We think back in terms of you know, Indigenous peoples being in the, in the count, and it was 67 that we were included in the census. So you know, 75 isn't that far beyond that. At the time of the um, 67 referendum, I was five years old. So this is recent history for us. I do have a, just a brief story about John Deeble himself. So in the late 90s, there was a Masters of Applied Epidemiology and Indigenous Health established at NCEF at ANU. National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health. My sister was in the first cohort. She, she trained as a physio and was keen to understand epidemiology and then, you know, what did that mean for, for our people? And, and so John was in and around that group of people, including my sister, and your portrayal of him, or maybe the other colleague, um, portrayal of his character and his, you know, the importance of how he conducted himself, but also his doggedness about change was certainly shared amongst that cohort. 20 years forward, a good number of them completed their PhDs and some are in research, some are in community organisations. Sadly, in some ways, my sister's she's lived in Hong Kong for the last little while, <coughs> thinking about whether it's time to return to yes. Australia, actually. <laughs> but um, I did want to acknowledge the person and, and that legacy and that legacy that lives on. I mean, in terms of Medicare, you know, over the time, the, the idea of a universal healthcare system, I think, you know, we all agree with is critical. Aboriginal people's access to Medicare and PBS has been variable. I don't need to go into statistics here, but efforts around improving access, particularly, you know, some of the Indigenous health checks now, we're seeing the movement in the right direction. A lot of those health checks are actually conducted through Aboriginal community controlled health services. If we think about the system, they're a critical part of the system. And I'm, as a commissioner of the Productivity Commission, you're supposed to be you know, independent, unbiased. I am biased as, a, as the, one of the patrons of the local AMS here in, in Canberra, Wananga Nimitja. That system has been established because of the failures historically in our people accessing the health system. So all of that is still work in progress, I think. But we do have, with the health checks and the follow-up, you know, some improvements there. And we contemplate what would the system look like without Medicare, and it's probably a difficult one to think about. So Medicare does, I mean, it is incredibly popular and probably is seen as an Australian institution and very much part of our psyche, sort of, you know, a fair go and, and incredibly important in that. But I just, I look, you know, looking at Nicola's photo reminds us that there are some glaring holes and, and dental care <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> Why do you think that we, you know, we really still have a trouble to expand the program, to address yeah. some areas that are recognised? We know that sort of 26% of lower economic people don't go to the dentist. We know it has big health impacts. Why can't we seem to change the system well? 
Yeah, well, I think some of the things we've touched on before are the challenges with changing the system, including remembering the grand deal that was done with the state governments about free hospital access and Medicare sort of happening at the same time. And interestingly, that's come under stress recently. I think, you know, we've almost lost some of the muscle memory of, and I mean, I, I don't know it from, you can tell by my age, I, it wasn't that I can remember it from when I was younger, but our health minister do any reading back about various things. Those debates when Medibank and Medicare were first introduced and people actually going to jail for not paying their medical bills and being declared bankrupt and, you know, all these sorts of things. So it's hard to remember that the thing that we were trying to fix now is so taken for granted that the new threats to whether it's really delivering on its initial hope, I think, sometimes just get a little bit ignored. So mm. I think there is a growing issue, and I particularly am worried about this because of a previous role chairing the Cancer Council, and I know, you know, Ian works in this space too, is the, we're, we're back to the situation where people are remortgaging their houses mm -hmm. to pay for cancer treatments, and where we have a universal system, but we have targeted therapies that work for people with particular genetics. And I just think we are going to have a really big challenge, because we haven't succeeded in something which you would think is relatively as simple as dental, mm. How is the PBS and our current Medicare system going to work for these incredibly expensive and incredibly targeted therapies? And, you know, no one wants a two-tiered system where if you've got more money, you can pay for really good care. And if you haven't got much money or you're Indigenous and you can't access the services, you get some second or third-rate system. If you're meeting with a parent whose child needs a treatment, you would try every single treatment. If you actually look at the research and the epidemiology and a whole range of other things, you might say, well, actually, we would be much better off to pay for dental care mm. at a preventative level than we would to spend that amount of money on the treatment for a very small number of people. Now, that doesn't work if it's you and your child, but across the system, it's a better outcome. And I, I think a lot of thinking, if we're going to really let John Deeble's work take its next step, is going to have to go into how universal systems work in an environment where less universal treatments are increasingly becoming more common. So do you think that while the argument is still, you know, we're very supportive of universal health insurance, but in fact, some proponents are really seeing as a safety net and not really the universal model that it was originally intended. Do you think that is a risk for us in the current climate? Uh, I think it is a risk and I think no one wants to be in that position that it's a safety net mm. but I think it comes back to there needs to be a rethink of how all the different pieces fit together. Is Medicare going to be able to do what it was set out to do if we don't cover different components as chronic diseases are more common. Mm. You know, private health insurance was originally set up to pay for elective surgery and it's sort of turned into something that is expected to pay for everything. This isn't the way to resolve a system that works for a lot of people at a reasonable price. And, and Nigel, you're from one of the most famous NHS universal health insurance systems in the world. Do you think you're moving towards a more equitable and accessible system? Well, we, we, score, we, we, we score not so well on keeping people alive, but we are very good at equity. <laughs> yes. um, so 
if you survive, there is more equity of access. I'm very suspicious of the Commonwealth Fund yeah. rankings, I have to say. We have the same challenges about these high-cost pensions. It's an interesting question, I think, across many developed countries about whether we're seeing a decline in the post-war, post-Second World War consensus. Not a word that's used in the English-speaking world very often, but, but you hear it a lot in Europe. Social solidarity, the extent to which there is an expectation. The Germans typically have about eight definitions of it. The sick are looked after by the well, women get special protection from the rest of society, the old are looked after by the young, etc. Whether we're seeing society becomes more fragmented and atomistic, whether there is less sentiment in that direction, and there are some early signs that that is a problem. And then when it does start to bump up against some of these uh, challenges around high cost uh, medicines for small groups, I think there are mm. reasons to be con concerned. And it's a particular challenge where you have parallel private systems next to public systems. I mean, we have a bit of that, but you know, Richard Titmus from the LSE always used to say, a, poor ser a service for poor people is a poor service. And so the risk of creating fragmented systems with different tiers in is really, really quite significant. So I think we need to watch what, where the public are going with this. And we need to keep reminding them why we have these solidarity-based systems. There is a good reason for it, and we would lose it at our peril. Although I guess the one additional thought that is a real challenge for us, and because Medicare is so loved and changed the world for the better here, we don't like to ask whether paying per presentation is really the best way to provide care, particularly for chronic disease patients. And our experience dipping the toe in the water of, you know, this, of course, in Australia, the immediate tack is we're getting to Americanised health system, which, of course, nobody ever wants to do because that's seen as such a bogeyman. So then you never have the discussion about well, really, what about all the other health professionals that don't have access to Medicare that we increasingly understand are providing an important component of care? And so it's, it's very hard to have that argument when it's become so popular rightly, but whether it will continue to be fit for purpose if we don't do some fairly dramatic things, I think is, is hard to assess. I had one final question that um, I wanted to pose to the panel. So thinking back with hindsight and all your expertise and knowledge, if you were sitting next to John Deeble and Dick Scotton as they were beavering away, coming up with this universal health insurance policy, what advice would you give them about what they were about to launch on the Australian public? Nigel, I might start with you. That's a very unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I've rendered you speechless. Well, I've, I've been here for four and a half days, so I've gone past that feeling <laughs> that you know everything that you get when to a new country. You, generally, after about two days, you start to realise how complex it is. I'm not sure I have any. Have any advice? No. I, well, I think you should be cautious about what you don't know, and mm. therefore okay. I shall, if I may, okay, pass know. on that one. Yeah. Ron, would you like to add any words of wisdom? Yeah, look, I don't think it would be... If the question is asking something to move in a, a direction of specificity, I think I'd be be more inclined to have a yarn about the importance of Indigenous knowledges mm. and Indigenous governance and the things that mean stuff to Indigenous people and how that might shape what a system looks like. Mm -hmm. Nicola? Well, I think hindsight okay. is an unfair thing to impose. I think now I would be ask them to consider including in Medicare nurses, psychologists and perhaps considering whether having those primary care professionals in and possibly thinking about not starting with the specialists in would have over time changed. But I think the ill that was being fixed was the high costs which were at that time largely in the medical and specialist area. So the benefit of hindsight is a bit unfair. Yeah. But I think if they had been in to start with practice as it's now developing, 
would have allowed a lot more people to see the primary care as they need to and, and a better sort of funnel into the specialist. So a thought has occurred to me. <coughs> so in, in many other countries that have introduced universal health insurance recently, over the last 20 years, most of the former Soviet Union countries and, and the like, they fix the financing mechanism, but they don't get a provider system that mm -hmm. matches the needs of the patient. So many of us are operating provider systems that are misaligned to what are actually required. So yours is nowhere near as badly misaligned, I have to say, as the former Soviet Union. We all know there are alignment issues. And I think we've learned as we introduce universal health coverage, you fix the provider side at the same time as you fix the financing side. And don't think, oh, we'll come back to that later. I mean, I think that the fact that you found it so difficult to answer that question really signifies what a gift Medicare was to nation and the fact that we continue to reap the benefits of the work of John Diebel and Dick Scotton. So thank you very much for engaging with the conversation. Thanks to our four panellists for their words of wisdom. If you wish to find out more information about the John Diebel Lecture and Panel Discussion or about the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research or the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter. Thank you.